This morning, we are in Psalm 13, because we are starting a new series. It's going to be five weeks long, and we're going to be talking about lament. The name of the series is Psalms of Sorrow, Learning to Lament. You might wonder why we're spending time particularly meditating on Psalms of Lament, especially given the sorrows we experience in the world. Like Thad mentioned in his welcome this morning, you'd think we'd want to meditate on happy things instead of a psalm that begins by asking why God has abandoned him. But friends, I think this is necessary for us because of the seasons of sorrow that we're experiencing. We're experiencing seasons of sorrow in the world. Things like COVID just casting a shadow over everything. Or right now, more acutely, all of the circumstances that are going on in Ukraine. And seeing the people suffer and not knowing what we can do beyond praying for them. Not knowing what the future holds. This is also prompted by a lot of conversations I've had with many of you about seasons of sorrow in your own life, seasons of experiencing intense suffering that's not brought about by your personal sin. So you might be sinned against and experiencing suffering because someone else is sinning against you. You might be experiencing suffering because you're dealing with chronic pain. You might be experiencing suffering because the circumstances of the world right now have made your work and your life in general, incredibly difficult. Whatever the reason, it it, it came clear to me as I had conversations with different folks in the church that we're experiencing these seasons of prolonged sorrow with no, no end in sight and no real solution. In our world, we're discipled on how to respond to seasons of sorrow in different ways, ways that are ultimately insufficient. Our world might say, if you're experiencing a season of sorrow, that you ought to do what any good Minnesotan knows to do, have a stiff upper lip and soldier on, right? Minnesotans don't complain. We don't don't express lament over seasons of sorrow. We just chin up, right? Or what's more common even now in our world that we live in, as we view our problems primarily through a psychological lens, the response to your seasons of sorrow might be you need to get into therapy. And you need to process through this and learn to cope. Now, having resilience, a stiff upper lip, is not a bad thing. Participating in therapy to learn coping skills is not a bad thing. But those solutions are ultimately insufficient. Because think about what it leaves you with. It leaves you with, this is just the way things are. And the best that you can hope for is that you learn to cope. That's not what we see promised in God's word. We look to God's word and we say, God has promised us hope and joy. We, we see the characteristics of guys like Paul who says he's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And to me, sorrowful yet always rejoicing is not the same thing as this is just the way it is and all I can do is learn to cope. Right? Those aren't the same. There's got to be more. There's got to be something else that we can look to. Consider the life of Sarah, which Charlie brought up last week, right? He, I, I loved how he brought out Sarah's laughter 
in response to God's promise, being not because necessarily she didn't believe the promise, but because of so much pain related to waiting for the promise. Can that kind of pain be addressed by just having a stiff upper lip and waiting another year? Can that kind of pain be addressed through therapy? Does does Sarah just experiencing trauma? I was reading the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel this week. And Hannah is experiencing the same kind of pain that Sarah was experiencing. Year after year, no children. And Hannah was one of two wives. And Penina had children. And year after year, it says in 1 Samuel 1, she used to taunt Hannah. She used to attack her. Hannah very realistically said, how long will my enemies be exalted over me? Year after year, as she went up to worship the Lord, she would be taunted by her sister wife or whatever you want to call it. What kind of therapy could help that? The therapeutic answer to that would be, this is an abusive relationship and you need to get out. What if you can't? There's got to be something more. There's got to be something better. This season of sorrow comes about because we experience, as God's people, a disconnect, a gap between the pain of the present reality And the promises of what God has said about those who love him. What God has said about what he will do for his people. This is what Sarah was experiencing as she was in pain and laughing. Right? God had promised that he would give her children and yet he had not. There was a gap between the pain that she experienced as barren and the promise that God had said, you will have a child. And in this gap, she experienced deep sorrow. We have these gaps all the time because we live in a broken world. And we need to learn, as God's people, how to faithfully live in the gap between pain and promise. And the tool that God has given us in his word is lament. The tool that God has given us to live in the gap between pain and promise is lament. Lament moves us from that pain to trusting once again in that promise. And we're going to see how that does over the course of this series, how that works. So this is, that's why we're studying lament, because we need to learn how to move from that pain to trusting God's promises. What is lament, though? It's unfamiliar to many of us. It's not something that's commonly practiced in our culture. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning introducing us to this idea in general before we get to Psalm 13. Lament is a category of psalms, particularly. It's a category of psalms, and it represents over one-third of the Psalter in our Bible. Over one-third of the psalms in our Bible are lament psalms. And what joins them together is common characteristics. What joins them together are patterns, and we'll talk about those patterns in a moment, but I want to give you a definition of lament first. A lament psalm, or lament, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God's promises. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God's promises. You see how that works? We pray in our pain and are led to trust in God's promises. We're going to be walking through that this week, or excuse me, this this series. 
Um, another way to think of lament that I think is helpful, uh, another commentator talks about lament as songs of disorientation. Songs of disorientation. What we sing when the world is not rightly ordered. Right? Like, think about it. We sing psalms of praise. We sing hymns when all of God's world is well-ordered and good. Right? Our hearts overflow with a pleasing theme of joy. But we live in a world of brokenness where that pain exists and there's a gap between pain and promise and we're disordered. We're confused. And so lament are the songs that we sing when we're disoriented like that. Because God's world does not make sense according to God's word. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God's promises. Lament are songs of disorientation. What it looks like to lament, I said, it's their psalms and they have particular pattern. And it, we can learn to lament by learning that pattern. That's what we're going to be looking at in this series is learning that pattern. There are common patterns in lament and they're well identified in many different books. The book that I'm kind of leaning on for this series is this book right here called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. In the uh, bulletin, I will send out a link to this book. So don't worry about it if you forget what it was. But this book, he lays out the patterns in the Psalms that are there. It's not, he's not the one to come up with them, but he puts them in a helpful way. There's four key elements, essentially, in a lament. Four key elements in a lament. The first thing that you have to do, which we're going to be talking about today from Psalm 13, is you have to somehow come to God. You ha- there has to be an address to God. Uh, Mark, Mark Rogrup, I'm not going to say his last name because I'm going to butcher it. He, he summarizes this as turn. That's what we're doing today, right? That's the sermon title for today, turn. There has to be an address to God, a turning to God, which we're going to talk about more today. When you come to God in lament, as you turn to him then, there's an opportunity to bring your complaints before the Lord. He just summarizes this as complaint. There is a biblical way to complain to the Lord. We're going to talk about that next week. So turn, complain. After sharing these complaints with the Lord, then typically the lament psalms will go into a a series of requests. He summarizes this as ask, turn, complain, ask. There's these requests that we make to the Lord. Lord, do something about this, right? We'll talk about that in week three. And then the fourth movement or key element in lament is to trust. Laments typically in the Psalms have what what some people call a bounce. I think is a helpful way to talk. It starts with a plea, a, a, a downtroddenness, a downcast soul, a disoriented soul. And there's a bounce at the end where it turns to praise. It turns to trust. He summarizes that as trust. So the four steps he uses that we're going to use are turn, complain, ask, and trust. Usually the psalmist will express trust in the Lord or express praise to the Lord or even make a vow about something they're going to do in response to the deliverance that they are sure is coming. Doesn't mean that everything is turned out and been answered and been sorted out and all is done. The Psalms are not like 30-minute sitcoms where the crisis is solved by the end of the episode, right? The Psalms include this turn to trust that's an act of faith, which we'll talk about more in week four. So turn, complain, ask, and trust. For this series, we're going to be 
taking a psalm one at a time, and we're going to see these things in the psalm. We're going to see these patterns. We're going to let the psalms themselves disciple us in how to approach God this way. So my hope by the, at, for the end of the series is that you can learn to take your pains. You can learn to pray this way in the midst of your pain. And you can be led to trust in the promises of God as you learn to lament. That's my hope for me too, because I'm not very good at this either. So I'm hoping that the Psalms will disciple us in doing this. That's why we're going to be in Psalm 13 today. So Psalm 13, the main idea that I want us to get, the main argument that I want us to see from this Psalm is that when seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God. When seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God. Right? That's analogous with the first step of lament. Turn. When seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God. And what I want us to see in this psalm is three ways of turning. Three things that that looks like. We're going to see, first of all, that one of the ways we turn to God when seasons of sorrow come is that we bring our pain to him. We bring our pain to him. And then we're going to see that one of the ways we turn to God when seasons of sorrow come is we bring our prayers to him. And then we're going to see that one of the ways we turn to God when seasons of sorrow come is that we bring our praise to him. So pain, prayers, and praise as we work through the psalm. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 2. Verses 1 to 2, I'm going to read it again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? David, through these questions, brings his pain to the Lord. Listen, listen to his pain. Let's take it line by line. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? What is he thinking? He's thinking, God has forgotten me. We don't know David's circumstances in this psalm. But we know from the story of his life many times when he could have prayed this psalm. I I, I guarantee this wasn't a one-time thing. This was a repeated prayer for him. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Because I look at my circumstances and man, where are you? I don't see you anywhere. David's pain comes because he feels that God has forgotten him. How long, O Lord? Not only that, look at the next line of verse 1. How long will you hide your face from me? One of the ways to think about Psalms is they use parallel lines to make a poetic statement. Their poetry is more by parallelism than it is by rhyme. And so we ask ourselves, it sounds similar to the first line, right? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? But we ask, what is the psalmist doing in this second line? What's different? What is he advancing? David is saying in that second line that not only has God forgotten him, but God has actually intentionally hidden from him. Right? God has not only forgotten him, it's not just that God is neglectful, it's that God is purposefully hiding. How long will you hide your face 
from me, O Lord. If you thought, and many of you may have at one time or another thought, God is clearly hiding from me. How horrible. How how soul-crushing. David's pain is clear. Not only that, verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Other places in scripture, we see this idea of taking counsel in the soul as taking counsel with friends, being united with others in trying to figure out how to face particular obstacles. And what is David saying? My counsel is in my soul. It's, it's me, myself, and I. How long will I look for help and find none? How long, O oh Lord, will I look for counsel and find I only have myself? David is saying, I am all alone to face my trials. I am positive many of us have felt like that. I am all alone to face my trials. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All the day. All that's left is sadness. David's pain is real. Look at this last line. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We know from the story of David's life that that happened over and over and over again. It can be hard for us to relate to that idea because we don't think of ourselves as as having enemies, right? But I know there are many of us who have experienced interactions with people who want nothing more than to see you fail. Who want nothing more than to see you hurting. Who delights for some perverse reason in your pain and suffering. I think of Hagar with Sarah. When Sarah was barren and Hagar slept with Abraham. Not a good idea, but he did it. And she had a kid. And then what happened? She had contempt for Sarah. So, so not, only, not only did Sarah's plan to try to provide an offspring backfire. But it actually heaped up scorn on her and she felt what it feels like to have an enemy be exalted over her. David is saying, the world is against me and I stand alone without help. Not only that, but there may be an element in here of wondering if God himself is displeased with him. How were the enemies of God's people exalted over them? As a punishment for their disobedience, right? Typically, the way God's people had enemies that triumphed over them was because they stopped listening to God. They stopped following him. And so David may may be wondering, like, what have I done, Lord, that you are hiding your face from me, that you have forgotten me, that I stand alone and my enemies are exalted over me? When David asks how long, it's not a question, in my mind at least, of impatience. It's not like David is just waiting like, come on, Lord, how long? Seriously. Right? This is a cry of deep pain. This is a cry that says, how long, O Lord, I can't bear it anymore. Spurgeon, when he talks about this psalm, says it could be called instead of the how long psalm, the howling psalm. Because David is howling. How long? He's crying for relief. 
And he's bringing his pain to the Lord. It's a real pain. It's not the, it's not the kind of pain that we, that we say, oh, I got an owie. It's a deep, deep abiding sorrow. The first step in lament is to turn to our God. And the, one of the ways we turn is bringing that kind of pain to the Lord our God. We tend to try to hide our pain. Right? We hide it from one another. We, most of us can hold it together for two hours on a Sunday morning. But we can't hide our pain from God. When Sarah laughed that laugh of pain, God, God knew. Right? God knows your pain no matter how much you've tried to hide it from him. And so there's no reason to hide it. There's every reason to bring it to the Lord and to cry out to him. Sometimes the pain is so severe, we can't say anything. When that's the case, bring your pain to the Lord by relying on the spirit who groans within you in groanings too deep for words. Groan to the Lord. That is okay. Or do what David did. Let your questions bring your pain. Let your questions bring your pain to the Lord. This is a deeply biblical thing to do. Listen to Psalm 77, verses 7 to 9. More questions of how long. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? That's not a rhetorical question. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has his promises come to an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Or ask questions that get at the why. Psalm 74, verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Bring those questions. Let those questions bring your pain to the Lord. Notice that those questions don't sound very Christian. Right? Has your steadfast love forever ceased? We know the theological answer to that is no. Right? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? We know that God does not forget. When you bring your pain to the Lord, it is important that you do not worry about sounding unchristian. You do not need to have a properly orthodox formulated question for the Lord. You do not have to have your pain in right categories and confess the right things to bring it to the Lord. David, at many times when he is bringing his pain to the Lord in the Psalms, does not sound like a Christian. And that is okay. Do not let that stop you from bringing your pain to the Lord. We're going to talk next week more about biblical complaining. Because there is a wrong way to complain to the Lord. We see it all throughout scripture as grumbling. And there is a right way. To complain to the Lord. So stay tuned for that next week. 
This week, though, I want you to get this idea that you can indeed and you ought in seasons of sorrow turn to your God by bringing your pain to him. Bring your pain. Verses 3 to 4, bring your prayers. Psalm 13, verses 3 to 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Notice in the midst of David's pain, notice how boldly he prays. He's, consider. It, it's hard to get the impact of that, I think, for us, because we don't always think about the strength of imperatives. Questions fill verses 1 to 2, right? David is coming. He's bringing his pain. He's bringing his questioning. And then he transitions to imperatives, which are commands, demands. David is making demands in prayer of the Lord. Consider. When he says, consider, he's saying, Lord, see, pay attention. Consider what's happening to me, God. Do not neglect me any further. He's saying this to the God who he says has forgotten him and who has turned away from him. Consider. He's saying boldly, answer me. Not only see, Lord, but speak. Answer me, oh my God. When he says, light up my eyes, he's crying out to God and asking God to move, to do something, to respond to his pain and suffering. When he talks about lighting up his eyes, he's asking for God to move in such a way that restores his soul. Because light and life comes from God alone. And if God has turned his face away from David, he is without hope. Notice how bold these prayers are. Not only that, though, notice that these bold prayers are spurred on by the pain that David is experiencing. Why should God consider? Why should he answer? Why should he light up David's eyes? Lest I sleep the sleep of death. I am without hope, God, if you do not do something. David may have been facing circumstances where literally if God didn't act, he would die. He certainly faced those all the time. But he also talked that way when he faced circumstances that were so heart-wrenching, he couldn't possibly go on. God, if you do not act, I can't go on. How many of us have prayed like that before? How many of us have felt that, even if we haven't said it to God? If you don't act, I can't go on, Lord. I will sleep the sleep of death. Not only that, but if you don't act, God, my enemies will be exalted over me. My enemies will say, I have prevailed over him. My foes will rejoice to see my downfall. All throughout scriptures, God says he cares about the reputation of his name and how that reputation is kind of played out among his people. And so David is saying, God, you care about the reputation of your name. If you don't act, I will fall apart and your enemies will rejoice and think it was all they're doing. From that deep pain that David is suffering, he is spurred on to boldly bring his prayers to the Lord. Notice though, these aren't just prayers to any Lord or any God. 
These are prayers to David's God. This is why I said when seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God. David's prayers are anchored in his relationship with his God. Look at verse 3 there. We've got three commands. Consider, answer, light up my eyes. In Hebrew, that's four words. Consider and answer each a word. Light up is a word and my, and my eyes is a word. And guess what? Consider and light sound alike. Answer and eyes sound alike. So you have these four words, two on each side, that sound similar. And in the middle, you have, oh, Yahweh, my God. And notice David already cried out to the Lord. Verse one, how long, O Lord? So what's been added? My God. My God, David is anchoring his prayer in the fact that this is his God. This is the same God who called him from being a shepherd to be king. The same God who said, this is a man after my own heart. This is the same God who, when David said, I'll build you a house, he said, no, I'll build you a house. And your descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever. And David is taking all of that relationship and pouring it into this prayer and saying, my God, consider my God, answer me, my God, light up my eyes, my God, lest I sleep the sleep of death. His prayer is deeply anchored in his relationship with God. So too, friends, for us, When seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God by bringing our prayers to him. And the way we do that is anchored in the relationship that we have with him. Listen to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verses 4 to 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive, what? Adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Sons and daughters, we have all been invited into the relationship of sonship with the father. Which means we are heirs of God. Which means we can call to him as our father. And he hears. When we turn in lament to our God. And bring our prayers to him. We bring our prayers to our God. That has done all of that. In Christ Jesus for you and for me. And we pray out of that. Which is much different. Than praying like the pagan sailors did in Jonah. Right? To just crying out to any God. Hoping there would be someone that would save them. Our season of sorrow has not changed our status as heirs, children of God, those who can cry, Abba, Father. So when seasons of sorrow come, rely on that status as children and heirs. Turn to God and cry out to him. Bring your prayer to him. We're going to talk more about ways we boldly ask and pray in week three. Verses 5 to 6, not only do we bring our pain and bring our prayers, but we bring our praise. Verses 5 to 6, this is the bounce that we see in Psalms of Lament. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In this movement, David resolves to praise. The, the but I there is so significant. It is, it is significant in, in the English text because it's just standing there different than anything that's happened so far, right? David's been asking questions. David's been making demands. And now he says, but I, I will do this. But I. It's emphasizing that David is resolving to praise, which means he's choosing to trust. He's choosing to trust in the Lord. I will praise. And notice what he says. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice there that if we think about the tense of the verbs, I have trusted. I will rejoice. My heart shall rejoice. Excuse me. I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice. Notice there's a past and a kind of present or future, right? This, this resolve to rejoice. Notice in the next verse, verse 6. I will sing. He has dealt bountifully with me. We've got this, this present future, will sing. And this past, he has dealt bountifully with me. Within this section, then, in this psalm, we have this bracketing of past things sandwiching to future resolves. What that means is David's praise is grounded in God's past faithfulness. David's praise is grounded in God's past faithfulness. Look what God has done. David says, I have trusted. This is what David has done, but it's in result because of what God has done. I've trusted in what? Your steadfast love. That's the chesed word that we talked about in Ruth. That's the word that communicates God's covenant love and promises to his people. David has trusted in the fact that he belongs to God. I have trusted in your steadfast love, he says. Also, he says, he, meaning the Lord, has dealt bountifully with me. God has dealt bountifully with David. How so? In all of his life circumstances, God has shown David both favor, grace, and mercy. God has shown David repeatedly mercy and grace. And so David looks at this past covenant faithful love, this steadfast love, and he looks at this past mercy and grace that God has shown him. And then what does he do? He says, therefore, I will rejoice. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. Because of what you have done, God, I will do this. This will be the outcome of this time together. In a way, it's like God's steadfast love and mercy speak to David's pain. Right? David says, I look around at my circumstances and it's clear, God, you have forgotten me. And then God's steadfast love comes in in verse 5 and says, No, David, you, you've, you've trusted in my steadfast love. And my steadfast love never ceases. So no, I have not forgotten you. Right? David recognizes that though God has hidden his face, he has not indeed forgotten him. 
And God's mercy and steadfast love speaks to David's pain and says, Though you're surrounded by enemies, you're not really alone. You don't take counsel in your heart by yourself all the day long like you think you do. It feels like that right now, but that's not the final word. So David anchors or grounds his praise in God's past faithfulness. And this past faithfulness then feeds into this future hope. Even when the present circumstances haven't changed. Notice David's situation hasn't gotten better when he's resolving to praise. His situation hasn't changed. What's changed is he's been led through the process of lament from pain to trusting in God's promises. Friends, this is the way it can work for us too. This is the way it must work for us. God's past faithfulness must fuel our present praise, our present trust. God's past faithfulness must do this. And when when it does, when we let the faithfulness of God that we've experienced over and over again turn us from pain to praise, we've successfully lamented. Then our song that we sing is no longer a song of sorrow, but it's a song of praise. I think of it like, like a song, I think is helpful. Think about in songs, you have verses, right? They have, they have movement within them, and they, they change, and they maybe advance an idea. And it's similar with our lives, right? We have life seasons, life stages that we pass through. And those things change from one season to another. We have verse after verse after verse, right? But we always come back to a refrain. We always come back to a chorus. And in this case, the chorus that we come back to is God's steadfast love and mercy. When that functions like a chorus in our life, then no matter what the verse is, we're going to get back to the chorus and we're going to be reminded of what we have trusted on in the first place. And we're going to be drawn into trust again. That's how lament moves us from pain to promise. It acts like that as a song of disorientation that eventually orients us around God's promises and leads us to praise. So friends, I want to encourage you and me to fuel our trust and our praise in the midst of our seasons of sorrow with God's past faithfulness. Remember Lamentations 3, right? His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We have this faith nourished, as Charlie Handron put it last week, nourished on these words of God and on the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. We know that his mercies are new every morning and his steadfast love does not fail because God has proven it in his saving actions. He calls his people over and over to remember what he has done. When David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love, He's not talking about Jesus and the cross, right? He's talking about the ways that God has manifested his saving goodness in his life and in the history of Israel. When David's thinking of that, he's thinking of the Exodus, being taken out of slavery in the land of Egypt and being brought into the land of promise. He's thinking about God's saving actions. We have the advantage as New Testament believers that we look back and don't have to look back all the way to the Exodus, although that can be helpful. We look at that and we see that God has similarly acted in saving goodness 
definitively in history for his people through Jesus on the cross. We look back and we see Jesus on the cross as definitive proof that God's steadfast love and faithfulness has not abandoned you. That though you feel that the Lord has forgotten you, he has indeed not. Though you feel like you are alone, you are indeed not. That doesn't change the fact that God may, for in his providential wisdom, hide his face from you at times. That doesn't change the fact that you may be surrounded by enemies. But that changes everything in how we respond because those circumstances don't mean that God's steadfast love have failed. I want to see all of us have the mindset of Polycarp at the end of his life. I I love what he said. He was facing martyrdom. He's facing death and he was killed. And he was told, if you recant, we will not kill you. And he said, 80 and six years have I served him and he has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp looked at the history of God's faithfulness to him and said, you know what? He hasn't wronged me. It may have felt painful at times. I'm positive Polycarp experienced in his lives times like Psalm 13, where it felt like God had abandoned him. But the sum of his life said, no, that's not true. The sum of his life said, I've served him and he has never wronged me. And therefore, I will not forsake him right now. I long for that for all of us. And friends, the way we learn to do that, the way we learn to be oriented that way in the midst of pain, in the midst of seasons of sorrow, is through lament. Through turning to God in our seasons of sorrow, bringing our pain, bringing our prayers, bringing our praise. Friends, this turning to God is ultimately an act of faith. It's an act of faith Because it believes that it matters that we turn to the Lord. Notice David believes that God has forgotten him. And believes that God has hidden his face from him. And believes that he is alone. And believes that he is surrounded by enemies. And what does he do in verse 1? How long, O Lord? He doesn't meet God's silence with silence. He instead turns to God. He turns to his Lord in faith, and responds to God's apparent silence by speaking to him, by bringing all of these things to him. You see, he, to do that requires an act of faith. You have to believe that it matters that you speak to God. You have to believe that God hears, that God is able to respond. We lament ultimately because we believe. A lament is not an act of Lack of faith. A lament is an act of faith. We lament because we believe that God is all-powerful, that God hears and sees, that God acts for his people, and that God has promised good to his people. If you didn't believe those things, then there would be no reason to lament. What you would do instead is cry out in pain. Everyone does that. We do that naturally. But only those who have faith can lament. Because we have a reason to lament because we see the promises that God has made when he has promised good to his people. And we see the gap between the reality of his promises and the reality of our present sorrow and suffering. And so we take our laments to God. We believe that those promises are true, even though the pain says otherwise. 
In his book here, Pastor Mark says, giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. And I absolutely agree with him. What we see in scripture is not silence in response to suffering and sadness and feeling abandoned by God. We see crying out. We see lament. Because lament is an act of faith, then lament is uniquely Christian and it is part of the core of the Christian life to lament because we live in a broken world where that gap does indeed exist. So friends, I want to encourage you as we go through this series in your own seasons of sorrow. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe you're not. But as you come to your own seasons of sorrow, I want to exhort you to turn to your God, to turn as an act of faith and to bring your pain your prayers, and your praises to him. Call out on the basis of his steadfast love and mercy that has been shown to you and to me in his sending of his son for us. And I I, I guarantee that as you do that, that God will, over time, lead you from pain to praise. Let's pray.